Welcome to the Lady Beta Podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Mern. I'm a certified health coach, certified personal trainer, and soon to be a certified brain rewiring coach. We're going to be talking about all things training, nutrition, mindset, and hormone balancing for the Lady Climber. You can learn more about me and the services I offer over at ladybetacoaching.com and over on Instagram at ladybeta.coaching. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is episode two and today we are going to be doing a Q&A from listener questions. I am super excited to dive into this. Side note, I did actually try to do this as an Instagram live the other day, but sadly we were in a (laughs) bit of a windstorm and it did not end up saving, so I figured it would give me a really great excuse to come and do it on the podcast. So let's dive in. This question from Kelly, she asks, what can I do for my grip strength? I think maybe I'm gripping holds too tightly because my hands get cramped, pumped out towards the top of the wall. How do I fix that? I'm not flashing roots. I would be able to because of it. Okay, so this is actually a really great question. And if you guys know me by now, you're going to know that everything for me comes back to mindset, at least first of all. So I would really explore the relationship between, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg? Is it the arms get pumped and then you feel fear or do you feel fear first and then the arms tend to get pumped? So if you are gripping or holding on too tightly, really examining your level of relaxation there. So do you feel relaxed? Do you feel like you could climb with straight arms and you don't have to be holding on super tightly? Like where is that potential anxiety coming from? Because a lot of the times if we're able to stay and remain relaxed on the wall, we're not going to be over gripping. So after you've kind of addressed the mindset aspect of things, I think then you can move and address the more physical aspects of strength. So a lot of people think that in order to get stronger or to not get pumped as much, you actually need to work on your endurance. I would argue it's almost exactly the opposite. So if we are focused on getting stronger and we are focusing on being as strong as we can for each individual move, each move will not take as much out of us and we're not going to get as pumped because of it. So I would really recommend doing some strength training around where you're doing something like max hangs on the hangboard. So with max hangs, you're doing the smallest edge that you can with the most weight that you can. Um, You know, don't go overboard here. Make sure you're still staying within your, your limits, but you're doing it to where it's a pretty high intensity for you. It feels like an eight or nine out of the one to 10 scale, and you're taking a long period of rest between it. So the hang time is short. It's about 10 seconds, and you're gonna be resting upwards of three minutes between your attempts. So making sure that you are focusing on true strength and not really focusing on the endurance aspect because if we raise our strength capacity, naturally our endurance capacity is going to raise as well. So other things that you can actually do, I know a lot of people have kind of those like grip tools where they have like the individual little buttons that you can kind of push down and they're like spring loaded. Those are actually beneficial as well. So if that's something that you would maybe want to play with, that could for sure be an option for you. But it also really comes back down to confidence. Like how confident do you feel in your ability to not get pumped or if you are pumped to climb through it? So really, again, addressing that mindset aspect of it because you 
your your confidence and your belief in yourself is really, really important in this situation. So next question is from Vanessa. Creating COVID-friendly goals. Maybe more focused on mindset improvements, but I'm not sure what that would look like since my original physical climbing goals are long gone. So with this, and I love how she brings up mindset, so she's obviously been tuned in for quite a while. And with this, I do think that transitioning to more mindset-focused goals could be a really, really beneficial thing to do. So identifying for yourself, you know, where are the gaps in your climbing right now? You know, what areas and aspects of mindset could you put some focus into? Because what better time than now? If one of the things that's really holding you back is, let's say, a fear of falling, Maybe it's going to be a fear of failing. Maybe it's a fear of climbing in front of other people. Maybe you just have a lot of anxiety around your performance. So what aspect of mindset could you put a little bit of time into right now that's actually going to pay off tenfold for you in the future? Because I think it's so easy when we are in the season, in the moment, we're climbing all the time to just really focus in on that strength aspect of things. I actually ran a group mindset program right in the beginning of the pandemic right in March and it was so incredibly beneficial. Even though people weren't necessarily climbing as much as they normally did, they got so much out of it because the climbing was not distracting them. They were able to focus in on the mindset aspect and they were really able to focus in on what was keeping them back from their truest potential. So with that, I mean, you can still definitely have physical climbing goals. I think, let's say, if you wanted to climb a certain grade by the end of the year, the season is definitely not gone in most parts of the country. We are actually just moving into kind of the more prime season. Um, Here in Salt Lake, the temps have been dropping quite a bit. They're going to go up by the end of the week, but they, they are ultimately moving in the right direction to what I would call like optimal temperatures. For me, I pretty much refuse to boulder in temperatures hotter than like 70. So I did need to kind of like wait until that cooled down a little bit. But I think with that too, you can just reframe your physical goals a little bit. So instead of like saying, okay, I want to climb X grade that maybe it's harder than any other grade that I've ever climbed before. Great. Can you potentially climb something that's not as hard, but maybe do multiple of them? So this could be similar to building your base, but not with the intention that you can't get on that harder thing that you really want to get on. Not to hold you back, but this is to build your base because you're really trying to build up the skill set that it takes to climb that next grade. And honestly, one of my biggest philosophies as a coach is I want us to feel as successful as we can the most often that we can. So really actively seek out those successes and what does that look for you? Can you find a way to be successful more often? So I think that, you know, this could be a really good time to focus in on mindset. It could be also a really great time to focus in on, let's say, if you bring your family climbing or maybe you want to introduce somebody else to climbing. This can be a really great time to focus in on that mentorship aspect and really get a lot out of teaching somebody else this sport that you love so much. So kind of giving back to the community as well. Maybe go pick up some trash, you know, on the trail or something or find a way to give back in some way. And I think, honestly, that's going to feel really, really fulfilling as well. So moving on to the next question, this one is from Lindsay. Um, so 
the TLDR of her question, and we'll go into the background too, because I do think that the context is important, is can having your hands spread farther apart than shoulder width make hangboarding significantly harder? So for a little bit of background, she says, I've been climbing for just over a year. I started hangboarding about six months ago. In the beginning, I got to the point where I was adding 21 pounds on an 18 millimeter edge on a half crimp. It felt great. I felt like I could have kept adding weight consistently. I built it up slowly, was using Abel Lopez's program and wasn't experiencing any issues. I took a break for about three weeks and when I started again, I was using a different hangboard. The initial one I was using was homemade because quarantine. It's now week three of starting again and I can barely add five pounds on a 20 millimeter edge. The only difference I can tell between the hangboard is that my hands are spread further apart. On the original one, they were shoulder width and on this one, they were quite a bit more than shoulder width. Could that really be what's causing issues? I can't hold on without slipping. 10 seconds feels like a long time sometimes my fingers will hurt afterwards after adding any weight whatsoever. Any advice? Could further spread hands really be causing this much difficulty or is there a different issue? So I love this question. I can nerd out on hangboarding all day, every day, all the time. <laughs> so hangboarding is my jam. It is something that I do for myself extremely consistently at least twice a week. This is something that I have all of my clients doing as well because I think that finger strength honestly cannot be understated. So I really love that she's been so consistent about it. She found a program that she really, really likes. And to kind of answer this in a short way, absolutely if you have your hands or your, in this in this case, it's actually your arm position. So that shoulder width, that could absolutely be making this more difficult. So when we actually are hangboarding, we want to make sure that we are staying more within that shoulder width. So it, this also depends greatly on the type of hangboard that you're using. So she mentioned that it was a homemade hangboard that she was using. Um, so, you know, that's probably going to be made out of wood. So if you are using either a wood or a plastic one, 100% that's going to make a difference. And I really, really do prefer wood hangboards. I feel like they are nicer on the skin. They're a lot more easy to just, I mean, honestly, do a lot of reps on because it's not going to have that rough texture. Plastic, I find that I need a lot more chalk to hang on to and they kind of bite back into my fingers a little bit more. Um, I tend to get more split tips when I train on a plastic hangboard versus a wood one. And when you're looking into this too, so if you have a one-piece hangboard, um, so that could be like a normal tension wood hangboard, or if you have a two-piece hangboard, kind of like the Trango Rock Prodigy, that can absolutely come into play. So if you think about it, doing a pull-up, just a normal pull-up, that's going to feel a lot easier uh, usually than doing something like a wide grip pull-up. So it really does depend where our shoulders are, how much more lat activation that we're going to have. Because when we're hangboarding, we're not just hanging on our skeleton. We're still in that active, engaged position and making sure that we are still working, you know, our lats, everything else, and making sure that we're still putting a lot of effort into it. Another thing to kind of look into could also be the positions of your hands. So when we hangboard, if we have our fingers spread 
widely apart. So if you like sit there, you open up your fingers, the spaces in between your fingers are actually called lumbricals and they work best and most efficiently when they are close together. So, you know, we're not wanting to overlap our fingers there, but making sure that your fingers are not spread out wide. You're not like spocking your hangboard pockets. I mean, if you really, really want to, sure, go for it. But if you want to get the most out of it, making sure that your fingers are relatively close together. And another thing to say about this too is that each hangboard is going to be so incredibly different. So for me, when I train, I really like to kind of have personal bests on each different hangboard. I don't put a lot of focus in on, oh, well, I was on this one and then I moved to this 20 millimeter edge and it felt a lot different because it's going to. Unless it's the absolute same model and version of a hangboard, it probably is going to feel a little bit different. And that's because of the make and the model. And a lot of the times too, especially with homemade ones, maybe the edges are a little bit more 90 degrees versus other hangboards, they might be a little bit more rounded. If you think about it, like that is actually a really big difference. So it's not surprising that it feels so different when you did switch hangboards. So with that, thinking of, you know, having personal bests on each different hangboard and also asking yourself, you know, how can I be less hard on myself in this situation? And really thinking about like, okay, what situations can I be proud of myself for? What successes have I had? And learning to kind of look at the situation quite a bit more objectively and kind of moving from that place of judgment for yourself versus like, okay, can I parse out some more successes? How do I actually feel today? Because I think a lot of the times if we don't give ourselves the chance to actually feel good, if we almost anticipate like, oh, this isn't going to go well, I haven't been feeling well, then of course the session's not going to go as well as it could have if you just kind of gave yourself that chance. So I think too, you know, a lot of the times if you have been hangboarding consistently for a long time, you might find that you hit a plateau. So this can be a really good time to switch up programs. So our bodies are meant to adapt that this is why we add weight on a hangboard is to make sure that we are progressively overloading our body so that it elicits a different change response so that we can actually gain strength. Because if we were to do the same thing over and over, we would elicit no different change response from our body. It'd be like, okay, I'm used to that. That's it. I guess I don't have to grow or change or do anything else. So if you find that, I know she was following Ava Lopez's program. If she finds that she has, you know, plateaued or stalled out with that, she could switch to a different program and probably see some results fairly quickly. Although you don't want to just keep changing programs every time that you do, you know, stop progressing. Sometimes that means that you might actually need to take some rest. And sometimes that means that you might need to just do something else for a little bit of time, or you might need to change up your rest to work in intervals a little bit. So next question is going to be from Grace. And I loved this question. Um, I actually messaged her about this and let her know the answer right away so she didn't have to wait for it. But her question is, when I finish one of your training programs, how long before I repeat it? And what do I do in the meantime? So Grace is actually referring to Send Strong, which is going to be my body weight conditioning program for climbers. So this is a HIT style program, so higher intensity interval training. And she loved the program and I'm so happy that she did. So I could see her excitement in this. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and see kind of how she was feeling. So one of the questions, and I like to ask this of my clients all the time, is 
did you enjoy it? How are you feeling? Did you learn anything? So if you can answer all of those questions, like I loved it, I had so much fun, I learned a lot, you know, that would be a really good indicator as to great, start the program up again. Like you don't necessarily need to wait any certain period of time before you start up again. It really is based solely and dependently on how you're feeling. So this also allows us to have a chance to really check in with ourselves and see how we're feeling. Do I feel tired? Do I feel like I'm not recovering well? Or do I feel really good? I feel really motivated and strong from all the efforts that I've been putting in over the last couple of weeks. So there's no one size fits all answer for this. I do think that when you do finish a training program, no matter how long it is, it might be good to take a little bit of rest after it. So maybe that's a couple of days, maybe that's a week. It kind of depends. So again, we need to make sure that we're remembering progressive overload. So if you were to repeat a program like that, you would definitely want to make it more difficult that next time. So ways that you can make things more difficult. So specifically for send strong, you can do things like adding weight to the exercises. Oh my gosh, that will definitely make it harder. I mean, it is already hard enough, but if you really want to kick it up a notch, maybe you do something like ankle weights, maybe you do something like dumbbells, absolutely that would be a way to add progressive overload. You could also do things like lengthening the work ratio, you can shorten the rest ratio. Those are all definitely ways that you can make it more difficult. You can try to get more reps, so working faster, that would be tempo. You can hold positions, so that's more of an isometric contraction. I would not recommend doing all of these at the same time. You know, you don't need to make it exponentially more difficult, but if you wanted to play around with these a little bit, I think that that could be a really fun way to do so. And since we were just talking about training programs, if you're interested in starting a training program of your own, you can head to ladybetacoaching.com and get 15% off any one of my three training programs. I have a six-week hangboarding program that's perfect if you have never hangboarded before or if you have and you're looking to up your game for those fall temps. I have a bodyweight conditioning program, Send Strong, that has been insanely popular that really helps you to condition and get in shape. It is a full body conditioning and it is so hard and so good. And my other one is going to be Strong Through the Season, which is an isometrics-based training program that you can use to help you do things like lock-offs, train your pull and your crimp strength, and it truly is the perfect accompaniment to outdoor or indoor climbing. So if you enter the code podcast at checkout, you can get 15% off of those programs. Next question that we have is from Laura. So she's asking, did I compete at some point and how do you prepare? She is going to try for the first time in the beginning category. And this is honestly so exciting. So I wish her so much luck in this because competitions truly are so special. I think that the climbing community is so different than any other sport in the fact that we are so supportive of each other. Like if somebody's competing, we're like, yeah, get that. Like, hell yeah, this is so exciting. It's not like any wishes anybody falls off or anything like it truly is such a special environment so I absolutely did used to compete this was such a big part of my life uh, throughout college so I actually started climbing in college and I joined the team at my university I actually became a captain at the end of it and it was just 
It was the best time. We had a circuit that we did every single spring season with other colleges in the area. So I went to the University of Idaho and we competed against um, colleges in Oregon, in Western Washington, and it was just, it was the best time. Um, some of my fondest memories are from there and from that circuit as well. Because again, like it is just so supportive, not only from your teammates, but from people from other schools as well. And just being able to travel, I thought that that was just so fun. I did also keep up competing after I got done with college. Um, I transitioned into route setting at that point and I was still trying to kind of like compete and set and then I did transition fully into just setting for competitions. But honestly, I think that that's one of the most special aspects of this sport. My most recent competition was this last winter um, back in Spokane, Washington. I did actually qualify to make finals. Um, I was definitely the oldest competitor by like almost 10 years, which I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> maybe this is not, not my thing as much anymore, but I do have a lot of insight as to what you can do to prepare for it. So I think one of the most important and beneficial things that you can do for this is to actually find out the format of the competition. So there are generally two main formats that people go for with competitions. The most popular one is going to be what's called a red point round. So a red point round is generally a set point in time let's say three hours is usually what people go for, that you have to climb your hardest routes possible. So in three hours, generally they'll take your top scores. Usually it's the top five scores. You add those up and great, that's your score for that round. The other type of format is going to be an on-site where you usually get one attempt. And if you do not send it, maybe you move on to the next one. Maybe you're done at that point. It really just depends on the format. So if you're able to kind of look at, let's say the sign up page, or maybe you're able to ask somebody and really say like, okay, what type of competition is that? That'll give you such good insight as to how you can actually structure your training. So with that, let's say it's a red point round and you're truly trying to climb just your hardest routes and really trying to push your limits there. So the way that I would actually approach that, so let's say you have to have five scores, you warm up really well, definitely count all of those towards your five scores. I mean, why not? You're probably going to knock them off pretty quickly. Then you can actually try some harder things after you have five scores on your scorecard. You wanna make sure that you do have the minimum um, number because what happens when you've spent all your time trying to, you know, super hard things and then you're like, oh my God, I only have three on here and it's the end. What do I do? So making sure that you do at least have a base of five before you move on. So let's say you feel pretty good during the warmups and it depends too on the points in the scoring system. Um, usually gyms do scores of like a thousand. So it kind of just depends and you're not gonna be able to really tell the grades, which is a good thing too, because then you might actually get on harder things than you normally would. So let's say the warmups feel good. You found some easy ones. You can maybe pre-plan the ones that you wanna get on. And then I would look at your scorecard and find ones that are a little bit harder than that. So this is where you can actually start testing yourself a little bit more and making sure too that you don't just go super hard in the beginning. So if you have three hours to climb, I would absolutely plan on using that entire three hours and not just going super hard the first hour and then totally wearing yourself out. So making sure if you need to, timing your rests. So especially once you start trying harder stuff, if you are, you know, trying things that are at your limit, you're trying super hard moves, you want to make sure that you have at least three minutes in between your attempts to 
fully give it your all and to fully, you know, be able to recover between those attempts. If you need longer, you might need longer. Like three minutes is honestly kind of at the lower end. Maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's 10 minutes, maybe you need to go eat a snack. So making sure that you are, after getting those five routes, that you try some harder stuff. And then if something feels like too easy, great, bump it up another grade after that. So I would always recommend trying to knock off that lowest score that you can. Let's say you climb three pretty hard things and you still have two lower scores on your card. Great, if you can identify on your scorecard what routes are going to be above those ones that you need to knock off, that would be a really great strategy to go after. So for an on-site type of competition, one of the ways that you can actually train for this is to start timing yourself while you climb and really getting super good at route reading because this is absolutely going to come into play. If you have a red point round, you're not going to need to have as good of on-siteing skills, but definitely with the on-site round, you're route reading is absolutely going to come into play. Like you're going to need to factor that into your attempt. So maybe let's say the on-site round, you have three minutes to try this one boulder. Great. Then you can start giving yourself in your training three minutes to try boulders that are a little bit below your limit. So usually in competitions like this, in the red point round, they're going to set really, really easy stuff to really, really hard stuff. In on-site, they're not going to be setting as hard of stuff as they would in the red point rounds because it is going to be more difficult to flash something that is at your limit. So, you know, trying this with things that aren't necessarily limit boulders, but maybe a couple grades below what you can send and giving yourself that three minutes to truly try as hard as you can on that one singular attempt. So I would say it comes down to mimicking the type of format the best that you can. And not only is that going to physically get you in better shape for the competition, but mentally you're gonna feel so much more confident after having done that, that you're gonna be like, great, I feel really prepared. I feel like I can tackle this. So I think that competitions can be so fun. Hopefully post-COVID, more of us will be able to actually do them. I think that they're just so great and supportive. And if you guys have an opportunity to do them, I absolutely would take the gym up on it. Okay, so next question, tips for training with a broken foot. Oh, I'm so sorry. So this question from Jamie, I'm so sorry to hear that. But I think with this too, making sure that if this just happened, rest is so important. So injuries are traumatic, um, especially if you had something like surgery on top of that, that's going to be a double trauma essentially, but making sure that you take that time to come back to yourself and feel really good and give yourself as much time as needed to heal before jumping right back into training. I know as climbers that we are super concerned about losing our gains and losing our progress and not, you know, getting better as fast as we want to if we have something like a setback or an injury, but truly it takes about twice as long to lose our gains as it does to gain them. So let's say you spent about three months where you were really, really focused on hangboarding. You gained a lot of strength in those three months and then you stopped. You know, you got a finger injury and you totally stopped. It would take six months of doing nothing to lose those gains. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of perspective and a little bit of breathing room too. So with this, you know, giving yourself a little bit of time after it has actually happened to transition back into training. So I would say, you know, a broken foot, like it's, it's not ideal. Definitely not. Like that's going to take falling out of the equation. Absolutely. But there's a lot of things that you can definitely still do with a lower body injury like this. So like I mentioned, hangboarding could be a fantastic 
focus for you for the next couple of months. I think that hangboarding is probably one of the most beneficial things that we can do as climbers because it is so focused on finger strength. Um, sure, you can totally climb to just get stronger, but I think that having that, that specificity of hangboarding that's going to translate over to your climbing is so, so helpful. So let's say you did hangboarding a couple of times a week. You could do something like I mentioned earlier in this episode, the max hangs. You could do a more repeater style format where your work to rest ratio is relatively similar. Maybe it's five seconds on, five seconds off. Maybe it's seven seconds on, three seconds off. That's going to get you pumped like crazy. Um, I would say maybe stay away from adding weight until you really learn, okay, can I tolerate this, you know, with my broken foot or my cast um, or whatever you are dealing with there. Um, you can do a minimum edge protocol, which is very similar to the max hangs where you're not adding weight. You really are just trying to use the smallest edge that you can. I think doing something like what I have in strong through the season where it is isometric based training and you're just, you're literally standing there and you're pulling down as hard as you can on a hold. That can be so, so powerful. And I think a lot of people might look at that and be like, there's no way that that would get me strong, but it works like crazy. And you don't even have to stand, you can sit. So this might be honestly one of the best um, options for having that lower body injury is doing that. So not only can you do that with something like a tension block where you're using, you know, specific crimp strength, you can do it on the 20 millimeter edge, the 10 millimeter edge, but you can also do this with pull strength as well. So if you get a triangle pull down and you start to work on your one arm lock off that way, um, you can even get a device to measure this, something like a tin deck or a hanging strain gauge, which can be really, really cool to measure progress. You can actually see like, oh my gosh, at the beginning, I was able to pull, let's say 90 pounds. I worked on this for six weeks and now I'm able to pull 110 pounds. You know, that's very, very visible progress that you can see and that can be extremely motivating and something that you can definitely work on with a broken foot. So I would stay away from, you know, obviously falling anything dynamic and really focus on the things that you can do. So you likely are going to be able to do some weightlifting activities as well. So maybe that's going to be bench press. Maybe it's, you know, an overhead shoulder press. You can definitely still focus a little bit more on your upper body. And if your other leg feels good, maybe you could do something like single leg pistol squats, you know, obviously not with the broken foot, but making sure that you're still trying to keep that other leg semi-active at least. Um, if you can do any sort of kettlebell activity, maybe it's going to be, you know, an overhead halo and you can absolutely still focus in on core as well. So if you have a cast or a boot, uh, just think of it as an extra added bonus weight on there. So when I broke my ankle a couple of years back, I actually did a ton of core in my boot. And I was at the time I was like, oh my gosh, this is so heavy. This is the worst. But after that, I was like, wow, I can cut feet like a champ. Like I feel really good. And it's because of that extra weight with the boot as well. Um, I have a ton, a ton of core workouts on my YouTube channel. So if you just search Lady Beta, a lot of them are floor based where you don't need to be standing up for them. So doing things like leg raises, those can be really helpful as well in trying to engage those deep lower abdominals. So I would really focus on the things that you can do and the things that you have a lot of opportunity to focus on. Um, let's say if you're really not great at slopers, that could be something that you kind of aim your focus towards right now. Taking like a 30,000 foot view of your climbing saying, okay, 
what am I really good at? What do I enjoy? And on the opposite side, where are my opportunities for growth and improvement? And you're always going to see the most improvement when you focus on the things that you are not great at. So if you want to come out of this just feeling really, really good, it's going to take a little bit of time for you to connect that full body movement after your foot recovers, of course. Um, I think a lot of us experience this after returning to climbing for, you know, a lot of time off and maybe just only hangboarding is like, okay, I just cannot get my brain to connect to my body. I'm not used to like using my full body. That's going to take a little bit, sure. But I think that if you do keep up with the training, you're going to be a lot better off than you would otherwise. Okay, so next and last question here. This is from another Vanessa. She says, I have endometriosis and am doing an anti-inflammatory diet. This would be my jam. So AKA low carbohydrate. Any concerns with that? So I think she, in this question, she kind of knew how I would feel with this. And I've been talking a lot about this. And if you guys did not end up catching my four-day workshop, the four pillars that I did a couple of weeks back, you can still find the replays in the Lady Bay a Facebook group and I talked all about carbohydrates on day two. So we talked all about nutrition, macros, calories, um, if weight loss is a good idea for climbing. And I talked all about how carbohydrates are so necessary for athletes, not just athletes, but female athletes as well. So it does go quite a bit deeper than, you know, our athletic performance. Our hormones actually do need a certain amount of carbohydrates in order to signal and properly function. So with that, I don't think necessarily that an anti-inflammatory diet has to be low carbohydrate. So an anti-inflammatory diet usually does not have things like gluten, dairy, soy, processed sugars. So a lot of the times I think people would look at a diet like this and be like, oh my god, I have to take so much out. But truly, I think that this could be such a fun opportunity for her to start experimenting with different foods that she might not have eaten otherwise, because it really allows you to focus in on the healing aspect. So I remember a couple of years back when I first went vegan and then, um, or I first went vegetarian and then vegan, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to eat? And everybody was like, what do you eat? And then I was like, wait, this actually opened up my eyes so much more because the foods that I was eating before, I just, you know, I wasn't getting creative in the kitchen. I wasn't looking up new recipes. It wasn't really like fun or exciting. And then as soon as I kind of took some foods out of my diet, I was like, okay, well, I want to expand it. Like what else is there? out there. So I think with low carbohydrate, this is going to look different for everybody. So let's kind of, you know, define this a little bit. Those maybe in the keto or ketogenic space might define low carbohydrate as 60 or 50 grams and under a day. Um, maybe normal, you know, standard American diet that would describe it as 100 grams of carbs a day or maybe 150 grams of carbs a day. So low carbohydrate looks different for everybody. But I think the way that I would describe lower carbohydrate is 150 grams or lower, especially for the population that I work with, which is going to be female athletes. So with this, I think that there are so many different forms of whole food carbohydrates that we maybe necessarily don't think about because we're not we're not used to seeing them or maybe we just haven't prepared them before. So you guys are going to love this. You know I love, 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 love sweet potatoes. That can absolutely be a really great source of carbohydrates. Doing things like white rice, that can be really beneficial. And we actually do digest and tolerate that better than brown rice because that outer hull is 
already taken off and we do not have to do the work to digest that. Um, so things like sweet potatoes, white rice, you can also do normal potatoes if those are your jam. And then getting into maybe a little bit more vegetables that you have not experimented with. Maybe things like plantains, taro, you can do parsnips. There are so many different options that I think a lot of people maybe are hesitant towards because they're like, I just like I maybe didn't grow up eating this. I'm maybe not sure how to prepare it. But I think with that, like it is it is really worth it and really beneficial to experience not going super low carbohydrate during this time because if you're going to continue training and you're going to continue climbing, you do need to find a way to fuel that and that will be through glucose or carbohydrates. So with that, I think it's it's going to be very much worth it um, doing maybe some research. I, there's tons of great blogs out there on anti-inflammatory diets. Um, some of my favorite bloggers are going to be Danielle Walker. Her um, blog is actually Against the Grain. She has some amazing cookbooks. Julie Bauer of PaleoMG does an amazing, fantastic job of providing anti-inflammatory recipes. Her main thing is kind of paleo, um, but that paleo really does have a lot of tenets of anti-inflammatory. So getting super creative, like looking online, um, finding all these different new blogs, you know, this may be your excuse to go shopping at Barnes and Noble for a new cookbook. Um, side note, I love that excuse and I use that for myself very, very often. So kind of allowing this and letting yourself be a little bit more creative during this time, I think can be really, really fun. That being said, not everybody does well with higher carbohydrates. So maybe you do want to experiment going lower carbohydrate for a period of time. Um, just keep in mind that the effects of it, if they are negative, might not show up right away. So I would have like a cutoff period of time for this. Like, oh, I'm going to try this for two weeks and then kind of reevaluate where I'm at instead of saying like, oh, I'm just going to try it and not necessarily having an end date in sight. So again, for most women, for both athletic and for hormone health, I really do like to recommend around 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. I think that most women feel really, really good with that. And we did talk about in the four pillars workshop as well about tracking. If tracking is not triggering for you, you have a decent relationship with food, you're able to look at the numbers objectively, I think that during this period of time, tracking can be really beneficial because you do just want a snapshot of where you're at. If we don't know where you're at in terms of macros, it's going to be so much harder to determine where you can go from here. Let's say if you're not tracking and you're like, God, I just really don't feel good. Like, we don't know what it is. Maybe you increased your fat quite a bit. Maybe you decreased your carbohydrates, but actually just tracking and getting a really good good idea of that can be very, very, very helpful. So with that, thank you guys so much for listening. You can head over to my Instagram at ladybeta.coaching for more from me, and I look forward to talking to you guys soon. And if you're loving the show, make sure you tag me on Instagram in a story. I absolutely adore seeing that you are enjoying the show. I will also be doing a monthly giveaway for a free training plan if you go leave a review on iTunes. So make sure you like, subscribe, and leave that review. And I'll be doing that giveaway once a month. Thanks so much for being here.